I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. We're continuing the series that we began last week in this Old Testament book, right before Matthew, the last book of the New Testament. Malachi 1, verse 6 to 2, 9 is where we will be going this morning. Some of you, uh, no doubt, are uh, familiar, have, have at some point perhaps watched the reality TV show Undercover Boss. Um, I've seen it a, a few times. Undercover Boss, the format is that uh, either the owner or an executive in some company will disguise themselves and, and be put to work in, in, the, uh, in the company restaurant or store or wherever, they undercover to see how things can be improved, how things are going to to see and affirm employees, and um, it's been pretty neat. I haven't watched it many times, but I've seen it a few times, and it's been uh, quite heartwarming, uh, mostly, because this executive comes in, and they, they often will encounter some employee who is doing an incredible job, just an amazing heart, uh, serving uh, customers, working together, working hard, and and, and often those employees are actually struggling with things, and throughout the episode, they, they share some of their story, and that executive or owner hears it. And, and most of the episodes I've seen, that, that owner, that executive is so blown away, so blessed by that encounter and what they see, that they, they, they've heard the story of these employees, and so they bless them in some way. They, they pay for college so they can go back in daycare, so a single mom can, can advance, get more training to to pursue further things in her career or, or in some other way. And so it's been really, really neat to watch those stories. But not every episode goes like that. Uh, there are some episodes where the boss encounters an employee whose behavior is not praiseworthy. In one episode, the chief brand officer of a fast food restaurant in the States. Some of you perhaps have heard of Boston Market. They serve rotisserie chicken. And so this executive from the company is put to work under the pretenses of some uh, restaurant competition. And she is uh, put under the uh, supervision of a, a guy named Ronnie. Ronnie proves in short order to be incredibly rude and disrespectful, particularly when it comes to customers. Uh, he, he says to Rachel, you know, well, when, when people come, we're supposed to say, welcome to Boston Market, blah, 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 you know, and like treat them like they're on a pedestal. And, and then he tells her that the lobby sometimes gets really full and busy, but mostly it's just because people are, are staying way too long and taking too long to eat. He, he tells her, we have some really mundane things to do that I don't want to do, and because I hate doing them, I'm going to get you to do them. And, and then he says this. He says, children and old people are the worst, literally the worst I've ever seen in my entire life because none of them know what they want and they can't talk and you just have to deal with it. And then he says, I literally hate customers more than anything in the entire world. I hate them so much. They're terrible. They're the worst. It's all about them. And you watch this. And as a viewer, you know that he's saying these things to an executive of the company. And you cringe. And you go, oh, Ronnie, don't. It shouldn't be. Don't say that. And yes, I've seen someone make a gesture. Ronnie got sent home. 
It's painful to watch. It's painful to see that happening before your eyes. This morning as we take our second look into the book of Malachi, the second dispute between God's people and God, it's a passage that, for paying close attention, may leave us with that same sense of, oh, that's bad. We, we might find ourselves cringing, but, but I want us also to, to hear this this morning really honestly and vulnerably and, and, and take this as an opportunity to look in the mirror and reflect on our own lives, our own walk with the Lord. Now, before I read the text, I want to remind you, or for those of you who were not with us last week, I want to bring you up to speed on some important contextual matters. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, the last of the 12 minor prophets. Um, Minor not because of the message's insignificance, but minor because of the the length of books. The 12 minor prophets in comparison to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are very short. Um, We don't know precisely when Malachi comes onto the scene, when uh, this message was given to Israel, but we can reasonably deduce that it was sometime in the 5th century B.C., I would guess about four and a half centuries before Christ comes on the scene. Four and a half centuries or so before the New Testament era opens. And that means that he shows up in the post-exilic period. Now what that means historically is that Israel, God's people as a nation, that their golden years, if you will, their glory years, are behind them. When the kingdom rose to its heights under King David and then his son, King Solomon, those days are ancient history. And following Solomon's uh, death, the kingdom was torn apart into two. The ten northern tribes, which went by the, the name Israel, and the southern part of the nation, which went by Judah. And we read through the historical books the history of uh, these two groups of God's people, and we see that they descend over and over, deeper and deeper into darkness and sin and idolatry until finally at 722 B.C., Israel, the northern nation, goes into exile at the hands of the Assyrians. In fact, they are wiped off the map. They, they are killed and carried off and dispersed and assimilated and they disappear. They're, they're often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The, the southern nation of Judah, the, the remaining part of God's people, politically speaking, Uh, They lasted a little bit longer. They did a little bit better, but about 150 years later, in 586, because of their own sin, because of their idolatry and unfaithfulness to God, they too go into exile, this time at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians invade, they, they lay siege to Jerusalem, and eventually Jerusalem falls, they destroy the wall, they destroy the temple, and they carry the people off into exile. But God makes a promise that He will return them in 70 years. And so 70 years pass, and under the Persians now, who've taken over from Babylonia, the Persians, uh, they release them. They say, you can return. And so some go back. Not all of them. But some go back. And it's a process. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen the way it should have happened. But over time, the temple is rebuilt. It, It pales in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And then eventually... The wall is reconstructed. But at this time, probably much of Jerusalem yet remains in ruins. The population of God's people is a fraction of what it used to be. 
Uh, the people do not have their own king. And, and so all these promises about the return and, and what that would look like seem unmet. And so God's people are disillusioned. They're disappointed. They remain under foreign domination of the, under, under the thumb of Persia. And, and so they're pretty skeptical about their uniqueness as God's people. We looked at that last week. They are harboring doubts. They are cynical and disappointed. And it's into that context that Malachi speaks. It's into that context that we encounter uh, the words that, that begin the book that we looked at last week where uh, Yahweh, God Almighty, says to His people. And remember, uh, I, I talked about how this is Judah. This is the remnants of Judah, but they go by the title Israel. That's, they are all that's left of God's people. And so when it says Israel here, it's not speaking about the ten lost tribes. It's speaking about the remnant of Judah that came back. They go by Israel. God says to them, I have loved you. And if you were here, you'll recall that that's not just past tense. I used to love you. Don't love you anymore. No, it's I have loved you and I, I love you still. That's, that's the foundational uh, assertion of this book. This is where everything begins. God says this. And, and, and they in their cynicism and their doubt and their despair say, how have you loved us? And that's where God speaks about how I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. And I'm not going to go into that. Uh, you can go and listen to that message if you weren't here last week. But, but in short, let me say this. It's not some emotional response like we think, oh, hating, like, that's awful. No, it, it's... The Semitic way of saying, I've preferred one over another. God has chosen Israel, elected Israel, not because uh, she was such a great nation, not because she was good, not because she was obedient. Simply, he chose Israel out of his mercy, but again, not simply for Israel's sake, but so that through Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so that's God's, I, I have loved you. I love you still. I chose you to be my unique people for this purpose. That's where everything began. This morning we are going to look at the second uh, dispute. Uh, and it runs to chapter 2, verse 9, from chapter 1, verse 6. It's fairly long. I invite you just to follow along as I read. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations." says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. 
When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. I want to do four things, or ask four questions with you of the text as we walk through this this morning. These four questions are, who is addressed? What is happening What is threatened and what is desired? Who is addressed? What is happening? What is threatened? And what is desired? I want to highlight what you likely noticed as I read the passage. That is that there are a few places where very explicitly these words from Yahweh are addressed to the priests in Israel. Verse 6, it is you priests who have shown contempt for my name. Uh, Then in chapter 2, verse 1, and now you priests, this warning is for you. Old Testament scholar uh, Elizabeth Ackmeyer writes, this whole section in Malachi concerns the failure of the priests. Now you might hear that and think, whew, time to zone out. That's not my role, not a priest. I'm not the New Testament equivalent of a priest. I don't need to pay attention. I I don't know about you, but but I, I sometimes miss the olden days, like when you'd phone someone and get a real person. I, I really struggle with automated systems. They annoy me. I, I, and often, you know, you, you listen, they say, hello, please listen to all your options, and I zone out. I, I, like, I, I never listen to all the options. I'm just going to push zero a few times or wait till the end. Like, I, I just want to talk to a person, please. But sometimes I ignore it, I, pay, you know, I read TSN or check email or something, and all of a sudden I'm like, shoot, I didn't hear anything. I don't know what number to pay, and zero's not working. And I'm like, I actually have to hang up and call again and actually listen, because there is something in there that I need to hear. I want to say that to all of us this morning. Yes, this concerns the failure of the priest, but this is relevant for all. This is not only a word to those in uh, In the priestly role in the Old Testament, it's not only a word to those in church leadership, pastors, elders, shepherds. Now, this is a word for all of us. And I want to show you that, uh, highlight that in four things that that show us the relevance. First, it is very clearly when we get to verse 14 of chapter 1, if you just look there with me, that is a word that is spoken not to the priest, but to everyone, where we read, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Now, 
Malachi, or, or the Lord, Yahweh, will have a lot to say to priests who accept these sacrifices. But that cheat referred to in verse 14, that's someone in Israel coming to the temple with a blemished animal. And so this speaks to everyone. Yes, the priests bear responsibility. The priests will be called to task. But there is a word for all of us who participate in worship, for all of the Israelites who participate in worship. Second, though the priests uh, under the old covenant had unique responsibilities, that is, they were charged with the operation of the temple, the administration of the sacrificial system. Uh, They were responsible for mediating the knowledge of God to God's people. Yet it was not only priests who bore that responsibility, the, the, the responsibility for right living, right worship. In fact, God spoke to this nation, the whole people, At their very founding at Mount Sinai, he said this, Although the whole earth is mine, you as a nation, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. That is, from the beginning, from their very founding, in God's view, the whole nation is a nation of priests. That is, the mediating role given to priests was a role that this nation had. Yes, within this nation, uh, the priests had a unique responsibility, but... But that priestly function of mediating the knowledge of God and all that that means was one given to everyone in the nation. And so any word to the priest really is also a word to all of us. Third, and I've made this point in other times when speaking about uh, leaders in the church today, leadership responsibilities in the church today. And, And that is the one exceptional thing about the qualities uh, the qualifications for those who serve in uh, the role of elder is the unexceptional nature of those qualifications. Because everything that is expected of an elder, a pastor, an overseer, th- those words are used interchangeably. Every one of those qualifications, except for one and a half, and I'll talk about those in a minute, every one of those qualifications is elsewhere expected of everyone who believes. And so the, the one and a half exceptions is that to be an elder, you are to have the ability to teach. And, and then you're not to be a recent convert. But even that is, is relative. If you go into some village and no one's heard the gospel and you lead people to Christ and you leave, maybe the most mature Christian has been a Christian for six weeks. That would be a recent convert. But, but compared to others who just came to Christ yesterday, they, they could be the elder. So that, that, that one's relative. But, but do you understand that? Everything that is expected of leaders in the church today is elsewhere in the New Testament shown to be a qualification that every believer is called to. So again, yes, there is a unique responsibility. There will be uh, unique accountability for those who are charged with that responsibility of leadership. But all of us share in that call. And fourth, once more looking at the New Testament, just as Israel as a nation is called a kingdom of priests, so in the New Testament the church is called a royal priesthood. That is the whole church, every believer. We have that same mediating role. That is, through us, uh, we are to make Christ known. That's our, uh, that's our mission. That's what we're called to. We're to be priests. That through our lives, through our example, through our testimony, others hear of the glory and the greatness of God. All that to say that though there is a very real, this is directed to priestly ministry, much of it. It is not to say that it was irrelevant for everyone else in Israel or irrelevant for us. It is profoundly relevant. Malachi's words on the priesthood concern every believer, Ackmeyer adds. So to whom it is addressed, it is addressed to the priests 
goes with that unique responsibility, but it is, it is truly addressed to all of us, all of Israel, all of us in the church. So second, our second question, what is happening? And here we get to the very heart, the core of this passage. Malachi's central charge, or Yahweh's central charge, Yahweh speaks. This is, I said this last week that throughout this book, there are these disputes, disputations where, where God will, God will uh, level a charge and the people will say, what? And they'll, they'll argue and then God will rebut and he will explain. And so we saw that last week, we see that again here. And God's central charge against the priesthood is that they have despised the name of the Lord or, or they've shown contempt. It, it, here's the NIV says, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. Now, when we speak about someone's name, uh, biblically particularly, this was part of it, to, to speak of someone's name is, their name represents the, the core of who they are, their being, their identity, okay? This isn't just saying, you know, Dennis is a silly name and, and putting down a name. It, it's to, to, speak, to speak of despising one's name is, is, is to despise that person, that that being, their identity, who they are, the, the whole of who they are. That's the accusation here. So, so God is saying that they despise His name. They, they show contempt for who He is. You ask, how are they doing that? Well, that's exactly what they ask. They say, but, but you ask, verse 6, the end of verse 6, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for Your name? How, how have we done that, Lord? That's the, the, the response of the priest. That's the response of this people. And the answer is found. They've shown contempt for the Lord, for Yahweh, in their administration of the sacrificial system. By offering, verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. And we'll talk about defiled food in a moment, but he says, this is how you defy, this is how you show contempt, by offering defiled food. And they're like, what? How do we do that? which God responds with these words. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased? Would he accept you? God has been perfectly clear with his people. Perfectly clear about what is required in the way of offerings, in the way of sacrifices. He, he's been perfectly clear. Let me read just two, two, uh, two texts from the Old Testament, one in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 15. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. I'm thinking that's pretty clear. Leviticus 22 do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. What? How have we shown you contempt? What are you talking about, Lord? Animals without blemish. Animals without flaw. And rather, they, they were to bring animals that were whole to the temple. Animals that we know foreshadow that the Lamb who would eventually come, Jesus, who was without sin, without blemish, without fault. 
The, the whole sacrificial system, some of you were with us when I preached through the book of Leviticus a number of years ago. And there's incredible richness as we read through these what seem sometimes tedious regulations, but they point us to Christ and the glory of the One who would come. The whole sacrificial system foreshadows the cross. And they are to bring animals without blemish, and yet they're bringing, they're bringing rejects. They're bringing to God animals that they would never think of bringing to an earthly authority, a governor, to pay their taxes, to, to show honor. The, the, the Israelites are bringing these animals to the temple, and the priests are accepting them. The priests are sacrificing these rejects, these animals that would not be accepted anywhere else. Uh, these are leftovers. The, these these are animals that they wanted to call, that they wanted to get rid of, that nobody would want. Things that were worthless. You see, the Israelites are still going through the motions of worship. The temple has been reconstructed. The priesthood is in place. People are bringing animals. Sacrifices are being offered. And if you watch from a distance, everything seems fine. But this is breaking God's heart. This is not what God wants. Verse 10, we, we read these incredibly sobering words. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you and I ex will accept no offerings from your hands. Do we hear that? God says, oh, that someone would shut this building, lock the doors, chain it up, shut it down. You're lighting useless fires. You're going through the motions and it's worth nothing. You're wasting your time. You're wasting my time. Leads us to our third question. What is threatened? There's two things that I want to highlight at this point. First, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. God speaks these words, and now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. This concept, this notion of cursing their blessings, is something some refer to as a futility curse. It is... It speaks of the frustrating of someone's efforts or their purposes, their plans. Think with me, the priest's role in Israel was to speak God's blessing to the people. That was their job, if you will. They're in the blessing business. People would come with their offerings and the priest would take them and they'd offer them and then they would speak the blessing of God over the people. Think of the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. The priest would pronounce this blessing over the people. That was their role, their responsibility, their privilege. And God says, I'm going to curse your blessings. That is, He's going to frustrate what they do. He's going to make their blessing ineffective. 
render their role futile. Instead of people receiving blessings of God, God's care, God's favor, God's presence, God's peace, they would receive the opposite, God's neglect, His disfavor, absence, and miseries. The, the priests will find themselves without a role. God will curse their blessing. He will take away their role, their responsibility, their, their privilege. Of course, we know that ultimately the ministry of this priesthood will come to its end when Jesus comes. In the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a better covenant. That He was a better high priest. That He offered a better sacrifice. There's a second threat that we encounter in verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. What? That, that seems... Shocking, doesn't it? Fairly earthy? Nasty? God says, I will smear dung on your faces. What? You might recall, again, if you were with us, or maybe just from your familiarity with the book of Leviticus, that God's instructions for the offerings, there were certain animals that were acceptable that God would receive as offerings. But when those were brought to the temple or to the tabernacle before the temple, the priests would receive them. They would slaughter them. And here's something that we often don't think about, if, if you will. In the Old Testament, the, the sanctuary, the, the, the tabernacle or the temple, would have seemed far more like a butcher shop than our church. Okay? There were animals being slaughtered and sacrificed every day. People would bring animals, the priests would receive them, they would slaughter them, and they'd have to butcher them. They'd have to, to clean them, if you will, because there were certain portions. You read that in Leviticus and you think, what's this all about? But there were certain parts, their stomach and stomach contents, the intestines and all the fecal matter in there that had to be removed from that animal before it was placed on the altar. And those contents had to be removed. Not only removed from the animal, but removed from the sanctuary, removed from the camp. In the Old Testament, they had to be brought outside the camp where they were burned. In, in, in Israel, when the temple was there, they had to be removed from the city, taken outside where they were burnt. They were unclean. They needed to be removed. And so what's God saying here? He's going to smear what is unclean on the faces of the priests so that they will be removed. They will have to be removed outside of the camp, outside of the city, outside of the temple, away from God's presence. a threat of exclusion. But I want you to hear this. It's important that we recognize the conditional nature of this curse in this text. Look at verse 2. We read there, if you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, even here in this bleak pronouncement of exclusion, of judgment, of a curse, even here in the midst of this, there is an invitation to repentance and to renewal. To listen and to resolve to honor God's name. And that brings us to our fourth question. What is desired? What is desired by God? I want to remind you again that this whole book, everything 
everything that we're going to make our way through is grounded in, is anchored to what we looked at last week. God's announcement, His pronouncement of His love. I have loved you, and I love you still. That's the foundation. That's that's the beginning of this. God loves them. God has chosen them. Again, not because they were more numerous than other nations. Not because they were good. Not because they were clean. Not because they were obedient. Not because of anything in them. God, in His mercy and His grace, chose Israel, elected them, called them to this special purpose. But even His calling of them was not for their sake only, but so that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They were a nation of priests. Men and women who were to bear witness to the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God. And we see God's desire that His goodness, His greatness, His glory will be known even in this text. Listen to this, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, said the Lord Almighty. God's desire is that throughout the world, people would know His greatness, His glory, and they'd worship Him. That people would know His love and that they would bow before Him that the greatness of who He is would be known. And Israel was elected for this purpose, to make His glory known, to delight themselves in Him. Verse 14 concludes with these words on the lips of the Lord. For I am a great King, and My name is to be feared among the nations. We see God's desire the establishment of His universal kingship over all the earth from where the sun rises to where it sets. And that Israel would be His instrument proclaiming and revealing the glory, the goodness, the greatness of who God is in all the world. That they would live as a nation of priests mediating the knowledge of God before all people. And yet, they are dishonoring Him. They're giving Him leftovers. Rejects. They're going through the motions of worship, but there's there's no honor. There's no reverence. There's no love. It's mere tokenism. And God doesn't want it. He doesn't want tokenism. He wants our hearts. He he wants our love. He he wants us to see the glory of His love and His grace and His greatness. And He wants us to be a people moved by that. Who worship Him with everything we've got. We don't just bring Him our leftovers. That we don't just go through the motions of Christian worship. God wants us to experience His love, to experience His greatness, and to delight ourselves in Him. That's what He desires. That's what He desired from Israel. That's what He desires from you and from me, that we would respond to His love 
in His gloriousness, His greatness, that we would respond with love and worship and delight so that His name will be great among the nations. For He is a great King. He is a great King. We see this We see this most clearly as we read on from the book of Malachi as we encounter Jesus. The the Christian faith is not about going through religious motions. Christianity is about having our hearts captured by the furious love of God and we see that most clearly in Jesus. We see that most clearly when God the great King puts on flesh. When God the great King becomes a man. When when God the great King walked on this planet and submitted to His Father and walked in obedience and holiness, we see God's love, His great love most clearly when we see the great King who comes, who willingly, humbly lays down His life for us bears the penalty that we deserve for dishonoring Him, for rejecting Him, bears the price that you and I deserve for our sin, and He willingly, out of love for us, suffers in our place on the cross. The great King over all, made unclean, exposed from the city, Crucified outside the city walls. I want to speak for a moment to any of you here who are with us here in this space or online who don't know Jesus, who have not repented and put your faith in Him. I want you to know this morning that God loves you. That God loves you. That God longs for you. I want these words as you leave, I want these words resounding in your ears. God loves you. He's calling you. He's inviting you to surrender to His love. He is the great King and He gave Himself for you. I urge you even this morning to receive Him. Bow your knee to Him. Simply agree that you need His grace that you can't clean yourself up, that you come in deep need and deeply moved by His amazing love and grace, His greatness, the great King who gave Himself for you. That's my prayer for you if you don't know Jesus yet, that you would, even today, you would leave trusting in Him. What about for those of us who are already believers? What is God saying to you and to me this morning? We need to, I said earlier, I want this to be a text that causes us to look in the mirror. And we we all face a danger. Many dangers. One of the dangers we face is the danger of merely going through the motions. Of playing religion. Without there being genuine substance. The danger of tokenism. Giving to God our leftovers. Giving to God what was not really important to us. 
And we have this sense, like, God says, you show contempt for my name, and we're like, what? We're bringing things? There's this danger of going through the motions and, and not giving ourselves fully to God. What does it mean for you and I to give ourselves fully to God, to, to seek to honor God and reverence God with our whole life, with our time, with our gifts, with our abilities, with our resources, to say, God, I live for your glory. I live for your honor because you are the great king. And so we face this very real danger of getting sucked into this. We're just going through the motions. We're, we're doing our thing. And, and Christ's Spirit wants to call us to repentance where we recognize that and to rejoice again in Christ's amazing grace and the greatness of our King. That we would, that we would fill our hearts and our minds with the knowledge of the good news about our great King that we would saturate our lives, that our community would be saturated with this glorious good news of the great King. Elizabeth Ackmeyer writes this, Through the recounting of the old, old story, in the preaching and sacraments, the music and teaching, the speech and deeds of the church, God reveals Himself to our hearts and minds as truly the great King over all the earth, as the Father who has created us and redeemed us and circled us with His electing love in Jesus Christ, and as the Master who guides and empowers and commands our lives. Such a God demands our life, our love, our all. Such a God demands our life, our love, our all. We need to be reminded daily. We need to remind one another. We need to celebrate the glorious good news about our great King who came and gave Himself for us. We need to let the truth of the Gospel shape us daily that we would gladly, with delight, live our lives, all of our life, for Him. Ackmeyer goes on and says, speaks of the danger we face, but when the church fails to tell its gospel story, its worshipers bring blemished gifts to God. The coins in the offering plate that cost them nothing, their discards for the poor, the remnants of their time, and the grudging gifts of their talents. Worship becomes perfunctory, sometimes tiresome service, or at best a sleepy duty, ineffective to change or touch anything in the worshipers' hearts and lives. Brothers and sisters, we're called to self-examination. As those called and redeemed through God's amazing grace, demonstrated, shown, purchased at the cross of Christ, we are a royal priesthood. We are men and women filled with the Spirit of God, and it is through us that God's name will be known, that, that the name of God will be made great in all the earth. That that is our calling, to live for His glory, to, to live as passionate lovers of God in response to His love that came first, in response to His amazing grace. Do you see that He is indeed a great King? Worthy of your all? Are you captured by the glorious and merciful love of God? Do our lives manifest the greatness of God to those all around us? Remember Ronnie. Ronnie hated customers. He was serving them. 
He was going through the motions. But his heart was not right. His heart was not in it. The hearts of Israel's priests, the hearts of Israel, the people, they were going through the motions, but their hearts weren't in it. God wants more for us. God wants us to be captured by His amazing love. He wants us to be captured by His amazing grace. May Christ work in us. May Christ open our eyes to see the glory of His grace. May He open our hearts to delight in His amazing grace, in His amazing love. And may His Spirit remind us moment by moment of this great truth that in God we encounter our great King. Amen.